Do we do an intro topic? It's all intro topics. Yeah, maybe we just start the episode. Yeah, maybe we just start with music? From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on our journey to the fringe. Hello, and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the only podcast that doubles as a 15% off coupon to Walmart, so long as you're persistent enough. We are your incorrigible hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, here to wrap up what has been one strange year that we have flown through in both a fast and slow way. Time creeps ever forward, at least how we perceive it. It is both imperceptible and noticeable. So we have had one hell of a year together. We have covered many topics on a weekly basis. Some of these stories have been recent and have had updates. So we thought during our time of contemplation between Christmas and New Year's, where you are too full of food and alcohol to really do much but think. I thought it was a time of self-loathing. It can be two things. Oh, it could be two things. It could be three things, but probably just those two. And we are going to talk about the topics that had updates over the course of the year that we can now get to. Let's just get right into it then. Let's start with Don Ziger. That sounds good. Okay, Don Ziger. So you'll remember him. This is an update from our Ecuador episode in its entirety. And we've had some updates on the Ecuador episode. So I'm updating on the update episode. And last time we left Don Ziger off, he was going in for sentencing, I believe, after he was found guilty on all six of his charges of contempt by the U.S. federal judge Loretta Preska for failing to turn over his devices due to client confidentiality, if you recall his side of that. Of course, I'm not going to get all into it. He was also disbarred, and he also spent around 800 days under house arrest. Prior to Don Ziger's sentencing, the United Nations had asked the court to consider an opinion by independent United Nations experts that found his court-ordered home confinement of more than two years was a violation of international human rights laws. It is said by the UN's experts that the U.S. breached international law by putting Don Ziger under house arrest for about four times the maximum sentence of six months that he has now received in his contempt case. And that the appropriate remedy would be to accord Don Ziger an enforceable right to compensation. Amnesty International also petitioned U.S. authorities to promptly implement the decision by the U.N. Working Group on arbitrary detention calling for the immediate release of Stephen Donziger. With that being said, come sentencing day, Judge Preska says it seems that the only proverbial two-by-four between the eyes will instill in him any respect for the law, she said from the bench. He was held at the maximum jail sentence for six months in prison. Thursday, December 10th, he was released from Danbury Prison to serve the rest of his 136-day sentence at home, where he started servicing, servicing is not the right word, serving, serving his sentence. (laughs) I'm just reading what I put, and that was not right. He started serving his sentence on October 27, 2021. Don Ziggler's legal team had requested his release under the CARES, which is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security. That's the update for now. Now he's under house arrest again. This kind of vaguely has, I mean, it has something to do with it. I just wanted to mention because it was kind of a neat article that I read. And so I just wanted to briefly mention that I came across 
uh, article entitled Law Students Launch Boycott of Firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Gibson, Dunn has crossed every red line imaginable in their weaponization of the American judical system to exact judicial. Judicial. What did I say? Judical? Judicial system to exacerbate the climate crisis, assault indigenous rights, and attack lawyers like Stephen Don Ziger, who dare to challenge their corporate clients. This appalling work undermines the rule of law and is incompatible with a livable future. And as the newest generation to enter the legal field, we will have no part of it. And that's my update on Don Ziger. Okay. I don't know whether that's a win or not, like him getting on house arrest. It is strictly just due to COVID. It is nothing other than that. And the judge did go ahead and just give the maximum sentence. Yeah, I don't know if he was happy to get, I mean, prison's prison, but like, I don't know how he felt maybe going back home to house arrest. Probably not good. And based on how many days are left in his prison sentence, it seems like he served at least a month and a bit behind bars. I wonder what's going to happen once he's done this sentence. They'll be continuing on the court case. Oh, does it pause for him being like in prison? I'm not sure about that. I haven't looked at the rest of the court case. It hasn't been happening right now, though, because it's the whole sidebar kind of thing going on with him getting charged with this. But yeah, I think Chevron's happy to wait until he's released. And in fact, they probably keep filed pleadings. Well, this is why it's just I'm sure they're going to find some other technicality. They want him to give up. They want to slow down the process. Yeah, and they probably want him to give up. Well, it's not so much that they want him to give up. They just want his life to be held for as long as possible. Yeah, that's Don Ziger. And with that, I'm going to keep it on a similar note with Julian Assange. Yes, I was wondering about this because I I saw an article on the same page I was doing this update from. Yeah, they're both kind of political prisoners at this point. Yeah. So we talked about Julian Assange on the intro to the episode that comes out next week, but just happened the week before this one is released. So it's a weird time frame. Don't tell our secrets. <laughs> you don't know the time frame in which we're recording. <laughs> and the problem is I don't really want to tie myself down to a title for this episode. So you guys know which episode I'm talking. <laughs> if not, go left one and we can talk after that. Or down one. <laughs> So Julian Assange's extradition hearing to the U.S. went to the appeal court of the U.K. The U.S. won. He was approved to be extradited. It hasn't happened yet. I haven't heard what Assange's legal plan is from here. But there is a story from December 12th of 2021. I found this in Al Jazeera that Assange's... I don't know why they described it this way, but he has a partner named Morris, and it's the mother of Assange's two youngest children. She said that Julian Assange suffered a stroke on the first day of the High Court of Appeal hearing on October 27th, and she tweeted this. In an interview with British newspaper Mail on Sunday, she said the WikiLeaks publisher was struggling and she feared the mini-stroke could be the precursor of a more major attack. It compounds our fears about his ability to survive the longer this legal battle goes on. And it urgently needs to be resolved. Look at animals trapped in cages in a zoo. It cuts their life short. That's what's happening with Julian. The never-ending court cases are extremely stressful mentally. It's not only that, but probably just being on the run and seeking asylum for how many years now? It's been forever. Over a decade. He lived in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. I believe he's been in there since... 2017, 2018. That's one part I forgot to look up. It's been a while. 
And every article I read, it, nothing has really a response from Assange since this ruling came out. But especially from the U.S. stuff, they talk about how he swayed the election in 2016. I'm like, come on. Like, there's there are many problems. But to just pin that and not say any of the good stuff he did as a reporter for WikiLeaks, it's propaganda. He's a scapegoat as well, I think, for a lot of things. They can just blame him. For most everything. And I think the article that I was reading was saying that they gave him asylum and i just briefly skimmed it because i didn't want to give anything away was because they thought he was a suicide risk in ecuador you mean yeah because they thought if he extradited that he would be a suicide risk and i think that he is like it is like something that would be extremely concerning what's going to happen to him in the united states oh yeah and the big thing before was the reason he couldn't be extradited to the u.s is because what they're trying to charge him with is punishable with execution and under uk laws you can't extradite if somebody would be murdered yeah i think we talked about that on the last episode too i don't that doesn't make sense to me yeah but anyhow the charges against assange are 17 charges under the espionage act for assisting chelsea manning in hacking into the military terminals which didn't happen at all and it's fully political attack to put it bluntly. Opinion, yes. If you guys want a full episode on Assange in the future, we can do that. It's a long, twisty road that most people have forgotten about at this point. I wouldn't mind that. That wouldn't be a bad one, I don't think. But anyhow, that is Assange. He's not in great shape. A lot of people are worried about him, but I do think the legal battle continues, but too short a time to actually give you any real updates. Yeah, it's true. It's been a week. <laughs> Okay, so that leads me to my next update. I'm going to go on to a disappointing one, actually, and I'm going to tell you why. Do you have any positive ones by chance? Yeah, I think I'm going to leave off with a positive one. It's going to be the cliffhanger that everybody's going to be waiting for, and you probably came to this episode for the update on. Okay. I'm just going to go out a limb and say it. That's why I'm here. That's probably why you're here, <laughs> but to come. Okay, Gabrielle Wartman is an update from... What are those horse boys up to? The Gabrielle Wartman case. I don't even know what to say on this one. I'm surprised at how hard I had to dig to find literally any information on this one at all. It appears as if I don't have much of an update on this one. And Taylor, I know that you mentioned an article where everyone died by gunshots, not by... Nobody burned to death. I could not find absolutely one article on that. Really? The last update was any article that I could find was prior to, aside from one, was prior to you actually doing the episode. And I'm going to read what I was able to find. Okay. So I left everything that was from before you doing the episode because I have faith that you put that all into the episode. I really, any topic I've had to do, we've done Bigfoot, we've done elves, we've done other stuff. Oh yeah, name another stuff. Yeah, I can't right now. <laughs> I can't be put on the spot like this. I haven't had to dig so hard to find any information on anything. I had to try a million different ways to search it and just, I still can't believe that. This is literally the only update I have on this. I found that there was a 911 call leaked of a 14 year old boy calling 911 who lost both his parents in the massacre. There's a lot 
of articles posted regarding this because a lot of people were calling out that this 911 tape was even released. One for the victims that you can hear in the recording and two for a minor basically calling into 911. Probably the mental health of this child and having it leaked to the media. Like I said, there's a lot of controversy around the leaking of the recording and that it's in poor taste. With that being said, it's theorized that the source of the leak is likely a current RCMP officer or someone working closely with the RCMP on its investigation based on the type of information that was leaked. There's a quote in the article, one of the articles I read saying, most police officers that finally leak something to the media is because they feel rightly or wrongly that the information is not going to be forthcoming to the public. In the recording leaked, it is clear that the gunman was driving a police vehicle, which is probably why it was leaked in the first place, because this is the day before he was shot, as you know, in this episode. But yeah, that's literally the only update that I have on this, unfortunately. Yeah, because they have the commission put together, they're keeping evidence tightly at hand. Yeah, they really are. And I was really shocked about lack of coverage of this when it's, you know, the RCMP and other than a leak, which was interesting as well. Okay, next topic, the Belarusian-Polish border fiasco that's going on. As we talked about in the episode, Chicago has a moth problem. I found a few updates. Both articles were written in December, one on December 8th, one on December 18th. It has not gotten that much better. Oh, no. This autumn, thousands of migrants have tried to make it over the Belarus-Poland border. The European Union has accused dictator Alexander Lukashenko of orchestrating the crisis in retaliation for mounting sanctions on his country. This explained actually what Belarus was doing quite well. Belarus travel agencies arranged charter tours from several Middle East countries with flights to Minsk from where authorities shuttle people towards the border with Poland and Lithuania. It's ironic that this border has more than 50 media crews gathered, yet Poland is the only place in the EU where journalists are not free to report. So they do have uh, media restrictions. And in fact, all the media is on the Belarusian side. Interesting. Yeah. So one thing that I've learned is in Poland, it is illegal to provide food, water, clothing, or anything to the migrants. So if you're caught giving or feeding people that are either crossing the border or sitting in that camp, you can be arrested. So activists are going into the forest on the Poland-Belarus border, and they're trying to bring water, food, and clothes to desperate people. Yet to perform this basic humanitarian act requires stealth. They have to hide and sneak through the forest. Attracting the attention of border guards, police, or army would force another pushback. There have been several cases with migrants who came to Belarus to Europe, later entering Russia illegally after being pushed back from the border fences with Poland. Two groups of migrants from Syria and Egypt were arrested in Smolensk Oblast in August, which is in Russia. From personal stories and evidence collected by minority rights groups, with colleagues at Grupa Granica, an alliance of 14 Polish civil society organizations responding to the crisis, we know at least 5,000 people have been in the forest and that at least 1,000 are there currently. We've been in touch with all, desperate victims of a disgusting power game between the states. Every time we respond to a call from someone in need or their mother still in Iraq or Afghanistan or a cousin in Berlin, we shoulder our backpacks and go. Day and night, long after the world has lost interest, 
Sometimes we look for people for hours. Sometimes because of security issues, they change their location many times. Sometimes elderly grandmothers or little kids with no more energy to walk are stranded in polar swamps. Now, since snow covers the forest, people cannot call us. Because their phones have been destroyed by the Polish army, we use their thermal images. We meet scared eyes, exhausted faces, bodies destroyed by the cold, desperately short of immunity after weeks in the icy, wet forest. Freezing, thirsty, hungry humans. I had no idea what hunger meant. I've given a piece of chocolate to my kids when they complain about dinner. I've read poverty statistics and history books. I knew nothing about hunger. People on the Poland-Belarus border have not eaten for weeks. Every few days after a violent pushback over the barbed wire fence, they may get an old potato from a Belarusian soldier if they have any money. They will share this with their kids. They have nothing to drink for days or drink swamp or rainwater, which causes stomach cramps and a deadening headache, further weakening them. The migrants were assisted across the Belarus-Russia border, sometimes by Russian citizens, according to a news site from Russia. In another article I read, three migrants crossed the border from Belarus into Smolensk Oblast in Russia on December 3rd. It is prohibited by law for third country nationals to enter Russia from Belarus at another location than the official checkpoints, but since there is virtually no border control, only random document checks are carried out. For the three Iranian nationals, the illegal entry to Russia was not discovered by law enforcement officials or they came to the northern town of Kandalaksha. I probably am not pronouncing that right, but... You did your best. That's the most important thing. In the Murmansk region. Uh, they have since been caught and they are being held for kind of figuring out what they want to do with them. So they're going the other way now. They're going to Russia. Yeah, because absolutely nothing's like nobody's letting them do anything because they were escorted to that border and told you have to go across and the people on the other side saying no you can't go across they're just moving upwards towards russia humans are so bad like why isn't anybody doing anything i know that this is what belarus wants to happen they want like somebody to give in but this is just you're using people as pawns it's evil it's so bad well and it looks really bad the reason belarus is allowing the media on their side too is to make it look bad they want because they're trying to get something by doing this. Exactly. But like to be using humans like this, it's just, it's so evil. And then Poland's not doing any better. Yeah, Poland has been fairly conservative for a long time. Sorry to our one Polish friend, if she's listening to this. It's been fairly conservative for a long time. It does worry about minority groups. They have fairly strict abortion laws. And yeah pushing in minority groups into an area that doesn't like minority groups, it was already spelling for disaster from the get-go. And it's still ongoing. Those people are being used as pawns. They thought they were coming to a better life, and they are even worse off than where they came from, which is literally a war zone. Yeah, and they're not going to be able to even get back there. Like, yeah. Oh, those poor people. So there's that update. Okay, this one's probably been long-awaited as well. So this one's updated from Christmas Can Be Weird. Two episodes ago, is the queen alive? As per the time that you're listening to this, we don't know. <laughs> I'm updating you as soon as I can, as close to the release date as I can. But the update as of right now is probably, maybe... <laughs> We've yet to hear otherwise, however, giving fuel to the fire with articles such as BBC's Queen Cancels Pre-Christmas Family Lunch as Omicron Surges. Yes, you heard that right, cancelled. 
due to England's chief medical officer's advice to prioritize events that really matter to avoid the risk of infection. The 95-year-old monarch usually hosts the lunch each year for her extended family before she departs for her Christmas stay at San Ringham in Norfolk. Hope I said that right. I'm English, so it should be. Not like proper English, <laughs> just I speak English. You speak it so well, too. <laughs> if you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Calling it off this year was the right thing to do for all concerned, said Buckingham Palace source. It would put too many people's Christmas arrangements at risk if it went ahead. And as well, we remember in October and November, the Queen cancelled several engagements after receiving doctor's advice to rest and then later spraining her back. Last official sighting of the Queen was the baptism that she went to, if we want to believe that. But that's it. No Queen sighting since. And cancelled. That's what I got on it. So maybe she's alive. She may or may not be alive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what? How about I do a quick one too? We'll just get some fast ones out of the way. The Mexico lithium nationalization as proposed by, can you remember the president? Elemeno. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Nothing has really technically happened on it yet because the reforms are planned for debate in 2022. Alejandro Armenta Mier, senator for the ruling Morena party, and who penned an earlier failed proposal to nationalize lithium, said companies must play a role in the country's lithium production, but the majority of the benefits should go to the state, local Daily Milenio reported. That was on December 8th, and on December 10th, Mexico's president, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, said lithium nationalization is one area not up for compromise in the debate over constitutional reforms to the electric power sector. We're conducting a dialogue, but there are things where we're not going to give in, AMLO said during his Friday morning press conference. For example, with respect to the nation's control over lithium, that strategic mineral must belong to the nation. AMLO discussed the topic with private sector leaders a day earlier, where he expressed openness to dialogue on the controversial reforms that failed to garner any opposition support in the congressional sessions ending this. So it's not popular outside of this party. So hopefully once they actually bring it up, they can find some more support. As of right now, it's stay the course. I can't remember. Are we in favor of lithium or no? Lithium is a can of worms that is better than other industries, but it has its highs and lows, its positives and negatives. Okay, so we... We're in favor of it. Okay. And especially I am in favor of a nationalization of a nation's resources and that if you're going to mine something out of the nation, all of the people of it should benefit from that. Yeah. I think that's fairly easy to agree with. Same with Canada and Alberta's oil. Yes, that will never happen, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay, are we on to me? Yes. Okay, my topic is the new UFO committee. And I'm going to be honest, we had this on the list, but have we talked about this at all? We vaguely did a long time ago. <laughs> What would be the episode? We talked about when they released all of the government documents. Then we said we were going to comb through them. We never did. We never did, but somebody did and they decided to do this. I don't know what episode this is from. Maybe briefly got mentioned, but here's the update. The Pentagon has created a new group to examine, monitor, and mitigate the threat from UAPs, which was announced Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. The announcement comes after another release of a report 
report in June 2021, which may have been what we talked about, which failed to provide explanation of 143 sightings of strange phenomena by military pilots and others over the past 20 years. Of the 143 sightings, 21 reports involving 18 episodes demonstrated technological know-how unknown to the United States. Examples include no observable propulsion or rapid acceleration believed to be beyond the capabilities of Russia, China, or terrestrial nations. Can you repeat that last little bit? The countries and... Yeah. Examples include no observable propulsion or rapid acceleration believed to be beyond the capabilities of Russia, China, or terrestrial nations. Okay. So Russia and China are not terrestrial nations. Interesting. Yeah. They're a separate thing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They are. So that's an update. Yeah, it is. That's an update on an update on an update. So if you'll remember even further back, this is all a result of the U.S. government's soft disclosure. This has all been a soft disclosure, if you guys haven't all noticed that. Let's be honest. Which is pretty close to four years ago today, just a little bit over, in which they had officially confirmed the existence of a $22 million program to investigate UAPs and release the now infamous Tic Tac UAP video. But that was the old program and has since been, there's since been two more programs including this new one and that would have been the advanced aerospace threat identification program that louis elizondo ran anyhow go back the report was frustrating to some in the intelligence community who believed there should have been more of an analysis and further research to categorize and explain the phenomena instead of saying i don't know like unexplained and that's it like china russia and other terrestrial countries can't do this. This individual was said to have had a huge I want to believe poster in his office and was referred to only as Fox. Word on the street is he's right as always. Just kidding. (laughs) That's obviously an X-Files reference. So Kathleen Hicks, Deputy Defense Secretary, has said that the group will be called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. So they went with a super catchy and short rolls off the tongue name. I also want to point out that this is in addition to one already operating called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Executive Council. So like already I've just named like four different government programs that are investigating UFOs and currently there are two operating. The group will be overseen by an executive council made up of the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, the Director of Joint of Staff and Senior Officials from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. They will focus on special use airspace including military operation areas, firing ranges and places restricted for national security and other uses as it is a potential safety issue for military pilots and national security concerns which got me to thinking commercial flights are probably just on their own i guess (laughs) nobody wants to investigate those oh yeah they'd have to take on the rocket man 
Yeah, which was my next train of thought. And obviously he wouldn't be grouped into that. So nobody's invested. That's why nobody knows who he is. Nobody's investigating it. It only affected commercial airline or military. So obviously anything exhibiting technology beyond the abilities of the U.S. needs deep study. And the government needs to get better at collecting information about the unexplained phenomenon. Which they say it as if they haven't already been looking at it, which they probably had. But since they're, you know, disclosing things, maybe they just feel like they have to pretend like they're doing something. I don't know. So all in all, the program will establish procedures to synchronize collection, reporting and analysis on the UAP problem set and to establish recommendations for securing military test and training ranges. I do have another little update, but I'm just going to leave it actually, because I think you have a few more updates. Yeah. So I'll leave this to do. But I actually just came across an article on Reddit that said, what branch was this with the military? Was it military or CIA that they had a file of remote viewers? Like, you know, when they had that remote viewing program? Like on the CIA website, you can actually find a lot of the remote viewers. Stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where this document came from. It was on a high strangeness on Reddit. And they found a document that they were remote viewing. What is that council? The like alien council. Do you know the one that the United... The Galactic Federation. The Galactic Federation. I saw that. I did not read the article. I don't think I read it either. But I think I bookmarked it to go back to because I thought that was kind of... I would like to read it. Okay, that's all I had to say on that one. Okay. At one point in time, I can't remember which episode we did this on, we were talking about the update to the Chilean constitution that is being rewritten by a very progressive group. I do have somewhat of an update that actually just happened. And because it's hard to find anything out actually about the constitution, Chile just had its election. Okay. And it was a very young left-leaning individual by the name of Boric versus a guy who considers himself and openly states he's the modern day pinochet like the dictator of chile okay it was a really tight race really but leftist lawmaker gabriel boric who is 35 years old on sunday became chile's youngest ever president on promises of installing a welfare state in one of the world's most unequal countries oh cool good for them yeah and this literally happened like six hours ago from recording really yeah oh cool so it is as up to date as you can get. He was a former student activist. He only just met the required minimum age to run for president. Oh, wow. Seven years after being elected to his first political job as a member of Chile's Chamber of Deputies. He prevailed over far-right rival Jose Antonio Cast, an ultra-conservative lawyer who had promised to cut taxes and social spending in a country shaken in 2019 by deadly mass protests for a more just and equal society. Boric has vowed to relegate Chile's neoliberal economic model, which dates from the era of dictator Augusto Pinochet, and is widely seen as sidelining the poor and working classes to the grave. He's promised to bring about a welfare state so that everyone has the same rights no matter how much money they have in their wallet. Chile has one of the world's biggest income gaps. 1% of its population owns 25% of the wealth, according to the UN. And people are heavily indebted, having to pay wholly or in part for education and healthcare. Pensions are entirely made up of private savings. And Chile is tremendously fractured. If Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism in Latin America, it will also be its grave, said Boric. 
on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. The millennial, because he is technically a millennial, was the candidate for the approved dignity coalition that includes Chile's Communist Party, an association that caused discomfort for many voters in a country deeply suspicious of communist doctrine. So interesting things ahead for Chile. I am very curious how things are going to proceed on that one. Yeah, cool. Good for them. I'm surprised that it's so, it was so close. But that was just like the Peruvian election, which I have another update on too. It was between an ultra right wing Fujimori or Fujimoto, who was the daughter of the last dictator. And it was razor thin margins. Hmm. Everything's shifting, either extreme left or right right now. Yeah, there's only room for extremes. Yeah. It's funny how that works. And then it goes like back and forth, I find it ping pongs. Yeah. Because someone gets in and then they're like, we're sick of you. And then they vote extreme on the next one. Yeah, or you get a middle ground guy who doesn't actually do anything because they're like, well, you both kind of have good ideas and one yeah. person wants to create an ethno state and the other person wants to kind of just give money to people to be able to go to the hospital. And they say, well, maybe we can compromise so it's the middle ground. You know, when you get humans around, I don't think there's any winning. No. So mine, I'm just going to kind of keep going off my update. It's not really an update from everything. I'm just going to call this an update of because I want to, which is more politics and UFOs, I guess. So while I was on the subject of UFOs, I figured I might as well update you on something I never talked about in the first place. So mystery follow-ups. I've been watching a Tennessee Republican representative, Tim Burchett, who has been quite outspoken about the topic of UFOs. He's been in the press a lot lately just because he is being so outspoken about them. He's just recently written a letter to the Congress of the United States detailing that it is incredibly problematic that we still do not know if these UAPs are simply airborne clutter, adversarial systems, or even advanced technologies not of this world, requesting that both committee brief members of Congress on their findings in a classified setting, followed by a public hearing before the relevant committees. He's also addressed Congress that the UFO report raised more questions than answers and stunk of a government cover-up, and that the committees I spoke about before Taylor talked about Chile cannot follow a pattern of secrecy, insisting that they need to be transparent with the findings. We can handle the truth. Plenty of press out there for Mr. Burchett. If you simply just Google him, he gives comments on it to different media outlets. You can see his address to Congress. You can easily find the letter that he wrote to Congress. I always find it interesting when somebody's being outspoken about it as well. And I think he brings up a good point with the secrecy around the whole thing. So yeah, that's just a small update on nothing that we've talked about before. <laughs> Okay, from there then, we can talk about the Berlin land expropriation. No real steps have happened since that referendum, which won 59% to just under 41% in favor of expropriating from large landlords, mm -hmm. all their rental properties. But I, I did see a few things that I would like to give updates on. So a day after the referendum, the firm Achelius transferred its Berlin portfolio of 13,700 properties to Heimstaden. On that same day, Vanovia, the second largest corporate player, acquired a majority stake in Deutsche Wohnenstock. That purchase took place for two main reasons. First, Vanovia believes that the expropriation will not take place. Second, it hopes that if the city does socialize units, it will do so at market prices. And such a transaction would be highly profitable. That would violate the essence of the referendum, though, which explicitly calls for the expropriation of the stock at below market prices. 
The referendum did not come together with pre-crafted proposed legislation on behalf of campaigners. This is because in 2014, a similar law put on the ballot was legally discredited, leading to the cancellation of the whole program. This time, the organizers preferred a different approach so as to not jeopardize the referendum taking place. The city government, therefore, is responsible for turning the referendum's text into law. Several committees in both the federal parliament, Bundestag, and the Senate of Berlin confirmed that the expropriation request is legally valid and compatible with the Constitution. If the call for expropriation is followed to the letter and to the spirit, companies will still be compensated but not at market prices. The state will then have to set the compensation and decide which entity is to manage the socialized housing stock. Many activists have pinned their hopes on Bezirk. I don't know how to say that. Bezirk. B-E-Z-I-R-K-E. Okay. The district level councils that played a role in preventing evictions and controlling rent. The Bezirk? The Bezirk nominating leftists and activists usually offer the strongest tenants protection because of the two key tools. The Vorkhofschraft, which gives a Bezirk a right of first refusal on properties, and the Mileschuk-Gebiet. Doing great. Means that in the poorest areas with, with larger swaths of people in need of social protection, the conversion of a tenure into property cannot take place without the approval of the Bazir. But the campaigners have defense enough. Their intentions is to push the expropriation to be implemented, and they're focused on the district level and local representatives to enforce popular will in the city senate. However, it is skeptical that SPD that holds majority both in city and in the federal level, yet they cannot govern alone. The composition of the new administration, whether it will be conservative or progressive coalition, will play a key role. According to activists, the law can be drafted by the spring of 2022, and the expropriation will cost between 9 and 10 billion euros. If their local representatives or the government try to bypass them, they will call for a new referendum, this time spelling out their 21-page-long legislative proposal. A vote in favor would mean the proposal would become law, bypassing the parliament altogether. I thought that laid it out pretty nicely. Everything kind of going on right now. Yeah. Both the corporate maneuvering to try to avoid it and the activist push to really get this finished up. I want to get your opinion on something. I was talking to somebody, we're not going to name names, about this issue Yeah. the other day. And they said that government housing creates slums. It can. It doesn't always. Because there's no upkeep on the housing. It's just cheap housing. It definitely can, but it really depends on what you want to compare it to. And the problem I have with just saying it creates slums, there are very many situations that you can look at. One of them being Vienna, pre-World War II. It's called Red Vienna. And basically they said, we're actually going to offer nice accommodations. So that if you're a private landlord, you have to compete with this. And this is the price that we're going to set it at. Basically, when people think about public housing, they're thinking about absolute minimum standards, basically for homeless people. Yeah. But that shouldn't be the only place that public housing could be used. Okay. Well, when you put it like that, that's a good way to put it. Because I think that's what majority of people are thinking of. But... I think both are legitimate things that are needed in society. Yeah. We were just driving the other day 
and not that we need to draw this episode out even more than it is, one of the major parks in Vancouver where a lot of the homeless population was, they put fencing up and kicked all of the people who were there living in tents out, essentially. And so the homeless population in Vancouver, even over 2020 in the COVID, has just exploded where you once would just go down Hastings and see this. It's expanding more and more in Vancouver. And it's so sad to drive through there and just see how it just seems to be growing and expanding every time that I'm down there. And it's so sad. And I I keep thinking to myself, when is this going to be too much for people? Like when is someone going to step up and actually provide? I know there's no easy solution. And maybe that's why nobody is working on it that like they just kind of brush it off. But like, it's such a sad part of society that's just kind of like brushed off with no nothing. And we need some sort of housing to get these people on their feet or something like that. You can't just ignore it. You definitely just define a job as a homeless person is near impossible because you need either a phone number or an address. Yeah. And it's just not only that, you need a place to be able to put your things so that they are safe while you are working. Yeah, just to have a resource, especially in these cities where they have larger homeless populations as, you know, social housing and people with the ability to help give them and start them and give them resources to be able to get their life back together, I think would be so valuable. And it's just something that's not there at all. And basically, when people are talking about like housing for the homeless and situations like that, I find a lot of people approach that situation of it. It's not permanent housing, like we need to give them some sort of reason to move on. So we can't make it good housing. And that's what people think of for public housing. Like it's not meant to be long-term housing. Even like when you're talking about beds, like people get kicked out of those so fast. Really, there's a great video. I believe it was from the Gravel Institute. They talk about Red Vienna that really shows the proper way to do public housing if you want to do it. Not half-assed measures, just take care of the most neediest in society and make it look like a government handout. And that's the big thing too. If people are participating on a government handout it has a persona to it that brings you down just because you have to take it like the welfare queens of the 1980s yeah that basically it belittles people who actually need it so that's kind of that whole thing of if you means test it the people who actually need it and get it are going to be belittled yeah so it's which is not yeah. good for society. No, exactly. So if you were just to yeah. make a base type of building that has upkeep built into it and has rent attached to it somewhat, and you can apply for if you can't meet that, I think that's a much better situation than slums or homeless shelters. Yeah, it is. It's a society problem. Yeah. But um, you're not going to see anybody actually argue for that in a long time, unfortunately. No. Well, because... We live in a capitalist society and nobody's making money off that, unfortunately. Oh, lots of people are making money off the homeless. Have you ever seen how much money goes to charities this time of year? Don't even. (laughs) Thank you for bringing me down. (laughs) But yeah, what would happen here? Like literally, this could not be a slum because these are existing properties that would just be owned by the state and the tenant would be paying to the state. I'm all for it. I think that it's a great idea. And in Vancouver, I think that we should follow suit because we could use something like that. Okay, what do you got? Okay, the Yule Goat Saga update. So the Yule Goat Saga update comes from Christmas Can Be Weird. 
And so Taylor, I'd like to say, take a guess at whether the Yule Goat is still standing. However, the odds were stacked against it from the beginning. <laughs> the odds were not in the Yule Goat's favor. The planets were not aligned. And all bets were off for the Yule Goat this year. And the Yule Goat was unable to survive 2021. So rest in peace, Yule Goat. The Gavle, Gav, Gavle? Gavel goat? Gavel goat. That sounded a lot better. Which is an annual Yuletide tradition in the Swedish town of Yavel. Yavla? I already forgot it. Was set ablaze on Friday, December 17th for the first time in five years, reviving a long-running tradition of people trying to destroy it as authorities scramble to stop them. A man in his 40s has been arrested in connection with the blaze, Thank you, kind gentlemen. I just look at it and I want to set it on fire. There is my update. Let's move now to the X-37B, which we talked about. Yes, I forgot this was coming up. We yes. talked about the in the episode, Surprise, Despise, Have Eyes in the Skies. As of today, December 19th, 2021, it is still in space from the mission it started out on, on May 17th, 2020. Long ass time has been up there, but it will continue to be up there. Stuff. Don't worry about it. I'm worried about it though. But China's spaceflight technology may have advanced beyond that of the United States, as it can now launch space planes without rocket propulsion, according to a Chinese military magazine. It means the space planes will not need launch sites and will be able to take off and land at airports. Mm. A cost savings development that has added concerns over the weaponization of space. China is developing a space plane known as Tengyun, which has a horizontal takeoff and horizontal landing, called HTHL, system. That gives it an advantage over the U.S.'s equivalent, which is the X-37B orbital test vehicle, which is rocket-launched, according to military magazine Naval and Merchant Ship. And so China's hot on the heels of the U.S. doing the same thing. Whereas Russia has taken a different approach and they are testing a direct ascent anti-satellite missile. It's called an ASAT. An anti-satellite missile? Yeah. It can target live satellites. And do what? Kill it. Take it down. What? Yeah. Can I, I need answers from Russia. Can they take out the X-37B? Well, and that's what I'm curious about too. So they had a test and the resulting orbital debris have focused international attention on the rapidly declining sustainability of near-Earth space and the need to constrain this kind of weapon testing. On November 15th, a Russian PL-19 Noodle interceptor missile launched in northern Russia and struck the now-defunct Soviet-era Cosmos 1408 satellite. At an approximate altitude of 480 kilometers, the intercept has generated a massive debris field in low-Earth orbit, according to the U.S. Space Command. More than 1,500 pieces of trackable orbital debris have already been detected, and hundreds of thousands of smaller fragments are likely to surface. The test represents a serious challenge to space sustainability and immediately increases the collision risk that other human-made objects and L-E-O, low Earth orbit face, including human inhabited objects like the International Space Station and China's Tiangong Space Station. This test underscores the pressing need to develop new international norms and rules of behavior in space. It should 
further galvanize international efforts to ban this sort of weapons testing, which has significant negative consequences for the space environment near Earth. So we are really militarizing space this last little while. Yeah, it's a. I'm a little concerned about China and what's to come with China. Oh, and especially the way the U.S. has been talking about China. Yeah. Like they're gearing up for war. It is. It's not looking good. All right, what'd you got? I don't think I have anything else. Oh, okay. Well, I got two more updates. Then. I could just give you a life update. <laughs> no, I'm good. You guys don't want that, though. <laughs> okay, continue on. Okay. The Peruvian election. So, as you remember, a quote-unquote Marxist won the presidency in Peru. Oh, yeah. Back in, I can't remember what episode that was from because it wasn't there, but... Um, Somebody let us know. I have an article from November 25th, 2021, and an article from December 8th, 2021, and they both got some good gems in them. Okay, good. That's what I was hoping. So the first one, Peruvian prosecutors found 20,000 US dollars in cash in a presidential palace bathroom belonging to (laughs) Bruno Pacheco, now former secretary, the now president, Pedro Castillo, during a corruption investigation. The money was discovered on Friday, hours after Pacheco resigned from the top government position amid a growing scandal that prompted a call for Castillo's impeachment by opposition legislators. The prosecutor's office released a report on Wednesday that indicates that Pacheco declared that the 20000 U.S. dollars that was found on Friday was a combination of his savings and salary. Oh, no. They took it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he's carrying around in a suitcase. I, I love that excuse. The prosecutor's office is investigating Pacheco for a case of alleged corruption or influence peddling. Pacheco had also been accused by the former head of the army of lobbying to promote a couple of officers to the rank of general. But in the end, the recommended officers were not promoted. And then on December 8, 2021, Peru's president, Pedro Castillo, has avoided an impeachment attempt with the South American country's Congress voting against the motion to move forward with the proceedings. The motion was introduced in October by right-wing parties, and it was voted down 76 to 46 on Tuesday as protests both for and against the left-wing leader filled the streets of the capital, Lima. Castillo was elected by a razor-thin margin in July, but has seen his popularity plummet amid corruption allegations and widespread protests in mining communities. Castillo's party, Peru Libra, rallied behind him on Monday despite clashing with him over policy and at one point considering supporting the effort to remove him from office. They called the attempt a right-wing coup. The impeachment motion failed, fascism failed, the parliamentary blow to democracy failed. Pro-Libra leader Vladimir Seron said on Twitter after the vote. Last week, the local media reported the prosecutors were also planning to question Castillo amid an investigation into the two former military officials' claims that they were relieved from their duty after refusing to promote the individuals recommended by Castillo. And I didn't know this. But impeachment proceedings have been relatively common in Peru, which has had five presidents since 2016. And in 2018, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski resigned from the presidency minutes before an impeachment vote. Oh. So it's actually pretty common. So Peru's not doing that well. (laughs) Plus they pay everybody in bags of cash. Suitcases. (laughs) Suitcases of cash. U.S. dollars. (laughs) Centrist Martin Vizcarra. Last year, stepped down after nine opposition parties banded together to pass an impeachment motion. They cited corruption and mishandling of, of the country's response to the coronavirus pandemic. So that's that's what's going on in Peru. 
It's, it's a mm. little interesting. Outlook not good. Yeah. It is decidedly so. With regards to the boob and Pinocchio, I did talk to my source. Did he have insider he information? No insider information. Damn it. So okay. the boom shall continue on uh, elusively as it is. It's still a mystery. The search continues. <laughs> <laughs> the last update I have is on the Florida building collapse. Okay, I'm ready. And unfortunately, it's not specifically about that, but it's about the area. Okay. Local residents and people who visit this popular seaside community for winter getaways uh, see the gaping hole in the oceanfront skyline as a reminder enough of what happened in the early mornings of June 24th and nagging concerns the collapse may not have been an isolated incident. This article was from this week as well, so it was the most up-to-date thing I could find. It was from Open Mail. I wouldn't buy a condo after that, said Mark Blaine, a New York banker who has been wintering in the area for years and recently set about buying a place. I'll buy a house, not a condo. He knows all about the questionable development practices of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s at the heart of the lingering fears that another collapse is waiting to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, point. But as long as the prices of waterfront properties continue to rise, development will continue. Mr. Bain points to the prices of condominiums in nearby luxury waterfront buildings, one-bedroom units for $7 million and four-bedroom units for $25 million. Wow. Some locals say a combination of lax building codes, inadequate inspection protocols, and enforcements and the corrosive effects of the oceanfront climate make the possibility of more tragedies like the Champlain Tower South collapse a possibility and not just in South Florida. Residents say the incident exposed serious flaws in the ways buildings have been built, maintained, and inspected. The fallen condo may also be a harbinger of things that come along other U.S. coastlines where developers and builders keep pushing the limits of construction and, in effect, thumbing their nose at Mother Nature. The tower's flaws were well-documented, an engineering report that was part of a county-mandated 40-year recertification identified major structural damages linked to waterproofing issues around the swimming pool deck and the parking garage and severely deteriorating concrete throughout the building, including load-bearing areas. And another thing that I thought was interesting about this, too, is a judge recently approved a plan to sell the Champlain Tower South property for $120 million. A decision that has angered some victims' families who were hoping to have a memorial erected on the site. Oh, well, it sounds very valuable. So corporations could just sell it for more money and not do that, I guess. Yeah, so that's what they did. Yeah, sounds great. And with that, oh, sorry, I do have one more just because I will do an update on this, but it hasn't happened yet. So it's going to be post live show. Are we bending space and time again? A little bit. So I'm going to need you after I say this part to say how interesting. I am so happy that it succeeded. On December 25th at about 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the James Webb Space Telescope successfully launched into space and is heading on its way to its final orbiting spot about 1 million miles or 1.6 million kilometers away from Earth. During these 29 days it will take to get there, Webb will be unfolding its mirrors and unfurling its sun shield, and this process involves thousands of parts that must work perfectly in the right sequence. Therefore, we cannot guarantee its success, but it is on its way. We should see the first pictures coming from it in about six months time once it reaches its location. I'm so glad that it made it. Good. Congratulations, everybody involved. And with that, we have aired all our dirty laundry. 
we have ensured that the world is as it should be. And then some. And we have made it all just about 4.6% better overall. What, I don't know, but something. And you made the journey with us this year. And in the end, we are just all journeys to the fringe in our own little ways. We really are. And in a much more real way, I am Taylor. And over here is Chelsea. And we are Journey to the Fringe, the podcast. All real stuff. Thank you for listening. And we will see you in the new year. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh